Morning, church. Uh, Pastor Dan mentioned we're beginning a new sermon series. Uh, Advent is over and the new year is, is beginning, or at least it's about to begin. Um, and it's uh, my privilege to introduce the topic. Pastor Dan asked me if I would. Um, and over the next few weeks, uh, Pastor Dan will dive more deeply into it. So our series is on the armor of God, um, which might be a, a passage of scripture uh, you may have heard of before. Our text this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he founded in a city called Ephesus. And Paul is writing to encourage this church, first reminding them of the incredible story of the gospel, whose center and climax is Jesus Christ, and the establishment of a multi-ethnic church body. And then, in the latter half of the book, he describes the ways that the gospel should affect the way we live, uh, the church, and us individually way we live personally and interpersonally. And so here we are at the conclusion of the letter, actually, um, when Paul leaves the Ephesian church with this final image that we're going to read in our text today. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. It's a very striking metaphor of the Christian as a soldier gearing up for battle. And uh, in my opinion, this is the most visually exciting image Paul gives us in this letter, or really any letter, um, it certainly was my favorite as a child growing up when I would hear about the armor of God in Sunday school or in kids' church. Uh, there was a song that I learned in church when I was young that went something like, I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. So um, it would make sense that I love that image because, I mean, all my favorite stories, my favorite movies, my favorite games, they were all about these brave heroes who would go into battle, right? Um, they would have swords and shields, and they would fight odds beyond imagination. And so I would frequently play with toy swords and shields, um, pretending that I was setting on, out on some like grand adventure, right? To rescue a kidnapped damsel from roving bandits, or protect the kingdom from like a marauding dragon or something, right? And I'm sure many of you can relate because, well, that's, that's just good stuff, right? That's fun stuff. And so as I was preparing to preach this text that Pastor gave me, um, I was once again reminded how, even as an adult, I still love these kinds of stories. And one of the stories I recently found myself engrossed in was actually from a video game called The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And um, if <laughs> some of you might have heard of this game, I know all the Stenberg boys have, um, you might be familiar with Zelda. It is, after all, one of the most popular fantasy video game series in the world. Back in 2017, Breath of the Wild, um, this particular version of the game, was released, and it became one of the best-selling and most acclaimed games in history. Most critics agreed it was the best game in the series, and some even went as far to call it the best video game of all time, period. I'm not here to opine on whether it's a good game or not, but um, I think it's illustrative for us this morning. If you haven't heard of The Legend of Zelda, that's, that's fine, right? I'm not expecting everyone here to be a video game geek. I won't lose you in all the details. But Breath of the Wild, on its face, shares with all the familiar tropes of every fairy tale and fantasy epic we know and love. There's a peaceful kingdom, an ancient evil, a princess in need, and a brave young knight armed with a sword and a shield. But the game also has some twists and turns that were designed to challenge the expectations of these kinds of stories. And as I sat in the text that we're going to read this morning, I was also struck about how Paul's words first grab us with a very familiar imagery of armor and battle. But then 
he challenges us in our expectations about what it actually looks like being a brave soldier for the Lord when you live it out. So this morning, I'm going to use the story of The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, to help us see and work through what God's Word has to say to us here in Ephesians. But let's start by reading the scripture together. The passage comes from chapter 6, verse 10 to 13. If you like using a physical Bible, there are ones in the back of the pew in front of you. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen. Right now, if you're able to, uh, I encourage you to stand as we read the Word of the God of God together. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, stand. Lord, we ask that you perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Open our ears and hearts to hear your word. Amen. You may be seated. So the first question that all good fantasy stories and games ask is, who are we fighting? In practically every Legend of Zelda game, the main villain is Ganon. He's this incarnation of evil who wants to take over the peaceful kingdom called Hyrule. And upon hearing prophecies of Ganon's imminent return, the brave Princess Zelda prepares to face this ancient threat by assembling an army of ancient technology called Guardians. Uh, they look really cool. Um, and uh, they're autonomous weapons designed to specifically look out for Ganon coming on the sky or coming from the north, the west, east, wherever, and, and, and fight him. But on the day of his return, Ganon takes everyone by surprise. Instead of attacking from the north or the south, he attacks from within by invading and infecting the very guardians that were meant to keep him as ba at bay. And so Princess Zelda looks on in horror as the very weapons she intended to protect her people turn on them and lay waste to the kingdom. She realizes that she's been preparing her whole life to fight the wrong enemy. Paul's letter warns us against a similar danger. Back to Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul wants to make it very clear that who we are fighting is not a person or a people, but the devil and all his plans. The phrase, powers of this dark world, in the original Greek, means cosmic powers, referring to authority that isn't human. And yet, we often find ourselves fretting over earthly authorities and powers, don't we? We worry about the local school board and their agenda for our kids' education. We worry about the Supreme Court and their agenda for the country. We worry about terrorism, secularism, wokeism, liberalism, communism, the list goes on. And some would argue that these sorts of authorities and ideologies and social forces, they come from the devil, and that this passage calls us to oppose them by whatever means necessary in order to resist the devil and his schemes. But I think the devil, like Ganon, is cunning. He's too smart for that. 
He attacks us from within. What the devil wants is simple, to keep our hearts from God by whatever means possible. If the devil can fill our minds more with concerns about earthly politics than truths about God's kingdom, he is happy. If the devil can flood our emotions with worrying about how our culture is becoming godless and so steal our peace and joy in Christ, then he's thrilled. Church, by fearing and preparing to fight the wrong enemy, we hand the devil our deadliest weapons to use against us. Worry and fear, anger, hatred, envy, and pride. He will use us to divide us, to hurt one another, to set up and propagate and worship idols. That's not to say that politics or cultural issues are not allowed to be concerns of God's people, but our primary enemy is not terrorism or secularism. It's not liberalism or conservatism, communism or capitalism. Our enemy is not Russia or China, Israel or Palestine, Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Our primary enemy is the devil, who is more than happy to let us get caught up in worldly flesh and blood conflicts, so much that we forget all about the spiritual battlefield. The devil doesn't particularly care whether Congress or the president is blue or red. The devil just wants a church so focused on fighting earthly battles that they forget the Lord's real battle, the battle for the hearts of man. So how do we keep our focus then on the true enemy and the real battle? To help us answer that, let's return to the story of Princess Zelda and ask a second, perhaps more subtle question, which is, why are we fighting? So that's Princess Zelda. She has a very fancy royal garb. Um, and that's because, as the royal princess, she inherits not only the title and all the trappings of royalty, but an innate but dormant magical power that, once awakened, could enable her to resist the evil Ganon. Since early childhood, she has felt a mounting sense of duty, an increasing sense of impending disaster, and a deep desire to prove herself as capable and competent to her people, to her family, and to herself. So in addition to building up that guardian army, Zelda spends her whole life training and training and training, trying as hard as she can to acquire enough strength so that she can fight Ganon. But on the day of Ganon's arrival, Zelda has nothing to show for her years of striving, except a land filled with death and destruction. Her horror at Ganon's invasion is compounded by her personal feelings of failure. If only she was strong enough, clever enough, dedicated enough, if only she fought harder, worked harder, maybe she could have stopped it. So why are we fighting? What motivates us, church, to resist the devil and his temptations? Perhaps the reason we try hard enough to be a good Christian is we simply feel it is our assigned duty. Or maybe we're afraid of what might happen if we don't try hard enough. Or perhaps the real reason we push ourselves to work hard be moral, to stay away from temptation, and accomplish things in the name of God is because we want to feel like we're good enough. We want to feel like we're competent, upright, respectable Christians. We want to prove ourselves to our families, to ourselves, and to God. Today's New Year's Eve. I was talking to uh, Lisa and Steve over there about how there are, you know, these great, um, great plans we make around this time for the new year, right? We're making New Year's resolutions with these goals of becoming better people in 2024. 
And if you've made some, good for you. Um, I don't mean to discourage everyone before you even start on them, but statistically, statistically speaking, it's not going to go as well as you hope. Despite your best intentions, that ice cream will probably find its way back into your freezer in a few weeks. That new gym membership might get some good use at first, but after a couple of months, maybe not so much. And no matter how hard or diligently we try to be kinder and more patient with our kids or with our parents or with our partner, a crossword just slips out again. And we swear, right? We're not going to fall for that one pet temptation ever again. But then on some lonely or anxious night, we find that we're right back at it, like an animal coming back to eat its sick. We promise that we're going to pray more, read the Bible more, think about God more. We resolve to be more joyful, more holy, more perfect this year. How are we doing with that? How did it go last year or the year before? How is it going to go this year? For a time, we might be able to fool our families and friends that we're doing pretty well. You just post to Instagram a few daily photos of your devotion routine, uh, act like our family gets along when you go to church, right? We might even be able to fool ourselves for a time. But there's no fooling God. He knows every moment we have and will ever falter. He knows how weak we really are. For Zelda, her motivations to awaken that inner power drove her to work and work until she dropped. But it wasn't enough. And whatever's motivating you right now to be a good enough person, that motivation won't be enough. It can't be enough. Failure comes for us all in the end. And God knows that all too well. So, God sent someone who was good enough. His name was Jesus Christ, born of God and yet a man, who would grow up knowing and feeling and bearing all of our struggles and hardships. He alone stood up under the weight of our human condition, facing the temptations of the devil head-on and not faltering. He was perfect in conduct and pure in heart. He kept every resolution he ever made. But Jesus was not motivated by fear or by duty or even a desire to prove himself to anyone. No, he was motivated by one thing only, his love for us, broken and unworthy sinners. He knew that our sin was too great and that we could never be good enough for God. And so he took up all our sin, all our failure, and was executed on a cross, killed at our own hands because we couldn't stand his perfection. Jesus gave up his perfection in order to remove our imperfections in the eyes of God. And by dying a death he didn't deserve, he took the punishment we all deserve, which is eternal separation from God. And Christ replaced our punishment with the promise of eternal life, the reward that he deserved. He won the fight by losing the battle. He gave up his life so that we may gain it. So church, why do we fight? Why, what then should our motivation be? Neither self-achievement, nor self-preservation, nor self-esteem, nor self-anything. No, church, our motivation to fight is and should be a grateful love for our God who first selflessly loved us. We fight because we love God who loved and fought for us 
We don't earn that love by fighting well, nor are we paying God back in kind either. We can't possibly return that degree of love that Jesus has lavished on us. But we can imitate it. In Breath of the Wild, Zelda's training and working so intensely that she pushed away her friends who cared about her, including her appointed knight, Link. Despite Zelda's bad attitude, Link faithfully stayed by Zelda's side and would time and time again throw himself selflessly between her and danger. Slowly, and at first grudgingly, Zelda began to recognize and appreciate Link's service, his acts of love. And slowly over time, Zelda came to love her friend back. And so on the day of Ganon's attack, when all seemed lost, Zelda found herself standing between her people, her friends, an advancing horde of Ganon's guardians. And suddenly a great light erupts from Zelda's outstretched hand, halting the guardians in their tracks. Zelda's power had been awakened, not by fear, not by duty, and not by ambition, but by love for those who had loved her. Her strength was realized when she truly realized why she needed it, why she wanted to fight. Something awakens in us, church, when we realize how much Christ loves us and how much he has sacrificed for us. And when we finally accept that unconditional love, we are then able to love and sacrifice ourselves. Not for duty, not out of fear or vain pursuit of acceptance, but in grateful imitation of our dearest friend who already accepts us. We can only realize the Holy Spirit's power to fight when we realize why it was given to us, to love our God and to love our neighbor as Christ first loved us. Unlike Zilda, we don't get to return the favor directly to those who have sacrificed everything for us. Christ has done too much for us to be able to return the favor. But Christ did say this, in Matthew 20, verse 40, he says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, whatever you did or do, for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do, you did for me. So we are called to respond to Christ's great sacrificial love by loving our neighbor. Our love for our neighbor is how, in this earthly realm, we get to respond. We get to give back God's love. And we aren't necessarily going to be particularly good at it right away, we're still human and fallible, but when our motivation is right, when our motivation for loving our neighbor is how Christ loved us, we will have both the greatest example and the greatest source of strength to draw upon. So we've answered several questions already. Who are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We know that we're fighting the devil and all his schemes, not any human authority or power. And we know our motivation for fighting comes not from a need to prove ourselves or earn God's love, but from gratitude for how God already loves us through Christ's sacrifice. And we've just started to answer a third question. How do we fight? And the short answer is we love our God and we love our neighbor. And I don't want you to just turn it off there, because yes, you could stop there, and that would be great, right? If you came away with just that, I'd be very happy. I hope you come back in the weeks to come because pastor's going to go through the individual pieces of the armor of God that Paul describes in the next verses and our understanding of why and how we fight will grow deeper and deeper. But I want to end this morning by drawing from the text a couple of important aspects of how we fight that aren't immediately obvious 
The first is this. Throughout the book of Ephesians, all of the you pronouns in Ephesians are not the individual you, but the collective you all, or y'all, if you excuse my faux southern drawl. Let's change the yous in part of our passage with y'alls and see how it changes the reading of the passage. Okay, so this is my altered version of the Bible. I know, that's kind of scary, but here we go. Put on the full armor of God so that y'all can take y'all's stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, y'all may be able to stand y'all's ground. And after y'all have done everything to stand. I know it sounds a bit funny, but it is more accurate to what Paul is trying to say. Because the armor of God isn't just for each Christian to wear alone, but for the whole body of Christ to put on as a whole church for the sake of the whole church. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the analogy of a human body to describe the responsibilities we have to one another in the church. We are one body, different parts, but one body. And so Paul's exhorting us, the church, to not merely look towards our individual spiritual preparation, but to one another's, because we are, well, one body. We are to put on the armor together so that we can stand our ground together. And so what does that look like? For one, actually being here on a New Year's Eve where you'd probably rather sleep in, right? Uh, physically here together as a church on a regular basis. As we gather together and worship together, learn together, pray together, sing together, give and receive love together, we are practicing putting on the armor of God, both on ourselves individually and on our neighbors collectively. And our neighbors include those who have not yet been joined to the body of Christ, our friends, our family, and literal geographic neighbors who do not yet realize how much God loves them. So this isn't limited to just Sunday service or church events. We are constantly supposed to be finding ways to share our everyday life with our neighbors, both believing and unbelieving. Remember, church, our battle is not us, the church, versus them, the world. Our mission is to seek those who have not yet known Christ's love and bring them into the body, into Christ and his love. And as we imitate Christ's love to our neighbors, we are fighting to bring them under the protection of the armor of God as well. Finally, I want to focus on an important word in the passage. In verse 13, we get, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Paul sounds a little repetitive here, but I think he's trying to be very clear about that word, stand. His instructions are simply, put on the armor and stand. He doesn't instruct us, put on the armor and slay the enemy, or conquer the strongholds, or turn the tides of the battle, or even advance. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, at the end of everything, the armor simply prepares us to stand. Does that sound a little boring? Doesn't the armor-clad hero in the story usually do more than just stand? Well, yes, they do. But who is the hero of the story? The funny thing about The Legend of Zelda is that it's not really Zelda's story. 
she's not the hero. The main character of the game is Link, her knight. Link is the prophesied hero. He carries a legendary sword that seals the darkness, capable of delivering the final blow to the ancient evil. Even after Zelda discovers her magical power, she's still not strong enough to defeat Ganon alone. But now, finally aware of how much Link loves her, she is able to stand and face the evil with the strength that that love gives her. And also, the hope that Link will come soon and finish the fight once and for all. Zelda has an important role in the story fighting Ganon, but she's not the main character. Link is the main character. He's the one who will save the day. Zelda's power and role isn't to defeat Ganon, it's just to stand her ground. Some people make fun of The Legend of Zelda for this reason, saying it should really be called The Legend of Link. They have a point. And so it is for our own story. We are not the main characters of our story. Christ is. Christ is the one who will save the day, not us. It's not the legend of me, the legend of Christ. Christ is the one who is destined to seal the darkness once and for all, both within our hearts and throughout the entire world. We cannot hope to defeat the devil ourselves, but his victory, Christ's victory over the devil, will be our triumph. And yes, we do have an important role in the fight against evil, and we have been given a special power to fight, but our role in this fight is to stand and nothing more, knowing that Christ will finish it. How can we have the confidence to just stand? Because we have confidence that Christ is not only going to win someday, that he has already won. Because you see, three days after he was nailed to a cross and his body was buried, when it seemed death had the upper hand, Christ turned the tables. Jesus rose from his tomb, more alive than anyone has ever been in history. He has shattered the power of sin and death. He had declared victory over the grave for all those he loved and died for. And it is by Christ's death and resurrection that we are saved. We already have the ultimate assurance and protection. Not even death can touch us now. There's nothing in this world we need to be afraid of. Just standing is hard. It goes against all of our fighting instincts. And we will frequently feel that we should be fighting harder, doing something for God, something more, something greater. But when we read Ephesians 6.10, our hearts often read it as, be strong for the Lord. But that's not what it says. Christ didn't need Peter to fight for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had it under control. And Christ doesn't need to be protected now. He doesn't need an army to lead a crusade for him to accomplish things. He's already won. It can be scary to lay down our weapons we think the fight will require. But those who live by the sword will die by the sword, right? Those who trust Christ enough to lay down their weapons and instead take up the wonderfully light armor of God will find true rest, peace, purpose, and strength in the Lord. So we can take Paul's command, not as a rallying charge to be strong for the Lord, strong for the Lord, but a wonderful reassurance. It, what it actually says is, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We stand not for the Lord, but in the Lord. Paul is saying, 
Once we've put on the armor of God, we've already won. The work is done. The fight's already finished. So we simply stand, church, not armed with our own cunning and ingenuity, but with the armor God has given us and nothing more. We stand not to prove ourselves or save ourselves, but motivated by Christ's unconditional love for us and our gratitude. We stand not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the body of Christ and the world we are sent to. And we stand until the day of evil comes, that day at the conclusion of all history, when all seems lost, when Christ will finally return to seal the darkness and set all things right for all time. Glory be to God. Amen.